welcome to the O'Reilly Data Show. I'm your host, Ben Lorica, here today with my friend Jay Ranganathan, Senior Director of Product Management at Cloudera, and uh, one of my favorite speakers at Strata Plus Hadoop World. <laughs> and uh, for those of you who are planning to attend Strata Plus Hadoop World in Singapore, he will be giving a talk. Uh, in fact, uh, we're going to talk a little bit about uh, the topic of his talk during this episode. Welcome to the Data Show, Jay. Thank you so much, Ben. So first, let's introduce you to our audience. Uh, you studied computer science in school. Yep. And uh, then, uh, jumped directly into VMware, is that right? From Stanford, right? Yep. I just followed uh, what everybody else in my class was doing at the time and joining, joined a prof of mine, uh, Mendel Rosenblum, who is my operating systems teacher. He was the founder of VMware. And I don't know what I was doing, but I was like, this dude is smart. I'm going to follow him to wherever he goes. And that's how I got started at VMware. So, was it, so what uh, areas were you interested in school? I was actually into dis a distributed systems programmer there. I did. I worked in the systems lab, and I did a bunch of research on things that have fallen out of favor today: uh, ad hoc networking and uh, various types of networking technologies to do uh, uh, more efficient communication when the internet was not as plentiful. Obviously, things have changed since then. So I was going to actually teach you in, uh, in terms of a uh, you know enterprise software. Come on, <laughs> why not? Go, why not go to a, a consumer startup like uh, some of these Stanford kids are doing? <laughs> You know, uh, I really enjoyed working on system software. I found the challenges to be different. And um, while I enjoy enterprise software, uh, consumer software as much as the next guy, um, I didn't necessarily find myself as excited by some of the technical problems you needed to solve in that space. Uh, not to say that they're not hard, but they're just a different flavor of problem. And uh, I was much more interested in systems building. So you started out at VMware as just as an engineer, basically, right? Yep, uh, many years as an engineer. And then, what was the what was the thought process and journey towards uh, doing more of a, a product management? Well, um, maybe it's because I failed as an engineer. I, I don't know. I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, um, I actually. Because uh, uh, usually what will happen is you're an engineer and then you start becoming an engineering director, right? I did actually become, a, uh, I was a manager for a while in the engineering organization and I switched out of that to product management. Um, I really just enjoyed being um, pretty um, close to what customers cared about. And obviously from product management, a large part of what you do in product management is uh, translate uh, real-world usage into product requirements. And the thing which uh, gave me a lot of joy here was that being an engineer myself, I had a lot of understanding of the technical complexity and nuances involved in creating software. And uh, what I did feel I missed a lot when I was an engineer is that if you work especially on like system software, I can work on virtualization all day long, but um, I don't necessarily appreciate uh, how exactly an IT ma uh, person lives their life on a day-to-day -day basis, so I don't fully understand the things that matter to them the most. And a significant part of my desire to move to product management was to feel like I was a bit more connected with what the customers cared about. Uh, at that time, I started doing management software, and management software is heavily driven by the day-to-day -day life of an IT admin. So I really wanted to spend some time with them to understand whether or not the things that we were doing was the most uh, effective way to improve their lives. So that's really a big reason why I made my shift. So at what point, so um, VMware, people think of more of a kind of the infrastructure of how you run your compute resources. Yep. And uh, so then you, 
uh, at some point decided you wanted to be more involved in uh, the data space? <laughs> uh, much like uh, my first job, uh, I tend to follow smart people around. And uh, I had a couple of uh, great folks who were working in uh, Cloudera at the time. Right about 2010, whenever Cloudera was started, uh, some my, some people that I really respected moved to Cloudera and they uh, started telling me, hey, this stuff is really exciting and interesting. Um, and frankly speaking, I didn't know a lot about the data space. I had obviously done database courses while I was in Stanford. And so I, I knew a bit about how the database internals work, but um, I don't consider myself to be a data guy, at least before I joined Cloudera. And... Uh, Frankly, I followed the people. There were some really smart people that I met at Cloudera, and that was the main attraction for me. Having said that... Um, so 2010, uh, I imagine a very few uh, VMware people were talking about Hadoop internally at that time. Oh, absolutely. Um, Eli Collins, who's the, one of the, uh, my colleagues here at Cloudera, who moved to... Oh, I know Cla Eli. Yeah, he moved to Cloudera around 2010. Uh, he made a big step walking away from VMware into this like brave new world at the time. And um, at the time, nobody at VMware was really thinking about it. In fact, I don't think many people anywhere were talking about Hadoop too much, um, the way it is today, at least. Uh, so he was uh, uh, clearly had a, a stronger vision for the future than most folks. Let's put it that way. So, so at, at Strata, at, at least in the past, you've given kind of this uh, survey talk of uh, what's new in the ecosystem in the Hadoop platform. So. As you look at the landscape now for Hadoop, so what uh, what are the things that uh, people should pay attention to and what are the things that are, let's say, 6 to 12 months around the corner? Yeah, so the first thing I'll mention here, and I know this is somewhat obvious, but I think it's still worth restating this. Um, Hadoop has changed uh, a lot in terms of definition at this point. Even in the last 18 months, um, MapReduce used to be the core of what Hadoop was all about 18 months ago. But there's been a steady drift towards more specialized application uh, system, processing systems, uh, which serve a very um, directed use cases. So for example, um, there are many, many SQL and Hadoop engines at this point, which really focus on um, SQL analytics. Having said that, even within those in engines, there are sub-specializations within them. So you might have like an OLAP cubing system, which is different from a large-scale analytic database, which is different from something that's trying to do uh, OLTP-style transactions on top of something like HBase. And there are stream processing applications, there are graph analytics applications, there are uh, machine learning applications. Uh, at this point, Hadoop has become more of a landing ground for a bunch of different specialized applications as opposed to being this, so, well, all you uh, have is MapReduce. As, yep. as someone who has to go out and explain to people uh, Hadoop, so do you basically uh, explain Hadoop as uh, HDFS and storage? Uh, storage and resource management, uh, as well as centralized uh, metadata are the things that I think really are important here. Uh, and metadata here means things like table definitions, things like security policies, uh, really what Hadoop has done well and differently from uh, traditional data systems is that it's uh, taken the standard layers a traditional data system has and broken them off so they can be used uh, independently of each other. Your, I mean, every storage system had a for data format layer. It just didn't work with any other um, database engine except the one that it was built for. Uh, everybody had a storage engine. Everybody had a lot of these concepts internally, but they just did it in a fit-for-purpose way, whereas Hadoop has really just broken this up into uh, consumable units that many systems can leverage. By the way, uh, for our listeners out there, I do know that the Spark community uh, uh, credits Jay for uh, bringing 
far <laughs> to the Cloudera platform. That's uh, I appreciate that. Uh, we I did spend quite a bit of time with the folks in the Spark world, uh, the AmpLab guys uh, back in the day, and uh, I was quite excited about the technology. So uh, I was definitely a big proponent of Spark uh, within Cloudera, and I think it's uh, worked well for us. We we feel very confident in our investment there, and we continue to invest quite deeply in that space. So so you brought up something interesting actually that uh, comes up in my conversations a lot, which is resource management, right? So mm -hmm. you can think of, uh, I guess you, your options for running Hadoop are many at this point. You can run it on uh, on Yarn. Yep. Uh, Mesos is also a, uh, an option, probably yep. less popular than Yarn, but certainly some people do that. Yep. Um, and obviously your old company, virtualization. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, VMware. Um, so where do you... So, uh, where are we in terms of uh, if you were to uh, just kind of uh, take a wild guess in terms of uh, what percentage of people are doing what? Um, so the answer ends up being relatively straightforward due to pure technical uh, challenges in various systems right now. I would say Yarn is the dominant form factor uh, for Hadoop workloads today. Um, Mesos is... So when you say dominant, 90%. 90 plus, uh, for sure. I I, won't, I don't want to describe a specific number because I don't have any yeah. uh, uh, specific numbers to use, but it's definitely 90 plus percent. And that's for a few reasons. Um, Yarn was co-developed to some extent with Hadoop, so it is really intricately tied to it. It's made, you know, it never uh, moves in a way that would break anything in Hadoop. Um, and that's because that's the primary workload to target it, so that's not surprising either. Um, on the Mesos side, Mesos is interesting. I think it has a lot of promise. Um, there have been, you know, technical challenges because, for example, Mesos is trying to fulfill a much more general-purpose scheduling uh, infrastructure capability. So, for example, things like locality were not as central to its original mission as they need to be for Hadoop to be effective. That's been changing. I don't, I don't mean to say that this is like some intractable problem. And in fact, the Mesos community has added work in this space pretty recently as well. But just due to the fact that that was not their primary focus, there have been shortcomings that have prevented uh, Hadoop from running necessarily as smoothly on Mesos. I do believe this is going to change in uh, the short term, um, but just as a point in time uh, thing. Right now. Yeah. Yep, Yarn is definitely uh, the predominant choice for Hadoop environments at least. So then, so you would say Yarn and then Mesos would be kind of like a distant second. At this point, yeah. And, and, and virtualization, virtualization virtualization actually ends up acting at a different layer because uh, oftentimes what people will do is spin up a Yarn cluster inside a virtualized environment as opposed to do the scheduling outside of it uh, in, in at the virtualization layer. So uh, those tend to be fairly cooperative. Actually, some of the things that companies like VMware, my old employer, have actually done some pretty uh, cool stuff uh, in Hadoop to make it work well with uh, virtualization. For example, uh, the things which break in the virtualization world is that you have two virtual machines, they can be co-located on the same host, and Hadoop is trying to make sure blocks don't get placed on the same host. This could break. Uh, so VMware actually added another layer in the topology. So um, the Yarn scheduler knows, hey, don't place on, or sorry, the HDFS uh, placement policies knows that don't place these blocks on the same, uh, on these two virtual machines because they're actually on the same physical host. So there's some interesting work that's needed to happen in Hadoop to support virtualization, but the virtualization layer doesn't necessarily do the scheduling. It still depends on Yarn to do that. By the way, uh, when people talk about data platforms, a few things stand out right away to people, right? So streaming, mm -hmm. uh, interactive analysis, which is usually SQL, yep. uh, machine learning. Yep. But you know, there's one thing that uh, people sometimes forget about, which is something analysts still use a lot of, which is search. 
<laughs> yes. You know, so, uh, and you guys have brought in search to your uh, platform as well, right? Absolutely. Um, and by the way, um, while I would like to uh, take the credit for brilliant product management uh, to bring search onto our platform, this was pretty much follow the user. A bunch of our users just stood up search clusters next to their Hadoop clusters and were like, hey, can you just put this in your Hadoop cluster so I don't have to manage a separate thing? Uh, and we were like, oh, that kind of makes sense. We should do that. And that's pretty much how that whole project started. So what else? Uh, so like if you look uh, six to 18 months, what are the things that uh, are exciting to you? The uh, world? So... Uh, this sounds a bit like, oh, this should already exist in really good form right now. But one of the things that I'm really interested in is expanding the set of capabilities for distributed machine learning. Uh, there, While there are systems out there today that do do this, I think relative to what you can uh, experience from a single node environment running scikit-learn or R, um, the set of things you can do in a distributed fashion is limited. And that's because some of these problems are fundamentally hard. Uh, they're not easy to distribute um, various algorithms and model building techniques easily. I think there's still a lot of work for us to do to improve that experience. Um, stream processing is another area where... So, what, really, uh, so, so, M, so there's MLlib. Yep. So it's starting to add more libraries, but uh, even I, who uh, I'm a far proponent, will admit that uh, as far as libraries, it's still... Yep. Uh, really um, yep. That's exactly the kind of stuff which I think really needs to be fixed. And I do want to have good open source options like MLlib. Um, and MLlib may be the right answer. I have uh, no object. I, I would be too perfectly happy if that's the final answer. Uh, but we do need those systems to just provide the kind of breadth and uh, depth that uh, you typically are used to in the single load environment, um, which I think this is the, that's just a matter of time and investment because these are non-trivial problems, that, but they are things that people are working on. So I, right. I do expect this to be solved. Right. And then, on the, oh, by the way, as you brought up streaming. Mm -hmm. uh, there, it seems like everyone writes their own stream processing framework. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, uh, I'm talking to you as I am uh, wading through hundreds of strata proposals and I'm like, another stream processing framework. Yep. You know, the thing with streaming again is that um, it started to get mainstream adoption, but in terms of systems maturity, it's still relatively young. Um, each system gives you all these complex trade-offs to choose from, and the trade-offs aren't even apparent and obvious. It's not like as straightforward as you used to in the SQL world. Um, you have like fairly nuanced uh, things to think about with respect to how you manage state, with respect to what your failure models are. Consistency. Exactly. All of those things are fundamentally hard and like no system has done this in a way that's super elegant yet uh, i believe having said that oh, are... I, I disagree because oh, okay. ev every person who's written a stream processing framework will say we've done <laughs> it <laughs> the best <laughs> <laughs> so uh, this is one where i really do strongly believe that long-term stream processing is going to be core to data processing now I, I having said that i do think that um the level of sophistication needed to reach uh, stream processing use cases today is higher than it should be. Uh, I think really makes sense to have higher level abstractions, uh, yeah. height of this stuff. Right. And right. the other thing, honestly, uh, which delays stream processing more than anything else is the source systems. Uh, it's actually kind of hard to get uh, data in a real-time fashion from many of the traditional applications that you're dealing with because you're like, hey, I'm not going to uh, pipe a uh, feed from my OLTP database on in a streaming fashion to your stream processing engine because 
what if something goes awry? Uh, there are techniques to do this, but uh, I think like in general, the level of control people or fear people have of like making open source real-time feeds is still a big problem here. So it's not even just a systems problem. It's literally the ability to get real-time feeds of data is important because who cares about stream processing if you're going to wait for 45 minutes to get, I mean, to get your data from a system, which is actually feeding the data. Which is actually a funny, uh, there's a funny story that Jay Krebs told me that uh, back in the day, you know, long before they were doing real-time at LinkedIn, mm -hmm. they were looking at uh, some real-time solutions. So some vendors came in and then <laughs> they liked the solutions and then they realized, well, we really don't have any real-time data. <laughs> <laughs> that is seriously the single biggest problem. And the other thing is, you know, people talk about real-time and real-time is such a vague word. Um, if you're coming from the... Uh, old school Hadoop, well, not the new school Hadoop, but the old school Hadoop, well, you're like, I'm used to like a six hour window for processing or a two hour window for processing. If you got to minutes, you were like, oh my God, this is real time. Real but... time, yeah, yeah. Which, <laughs> which is really interactive, right? Exactly, which is a whole different scale, which is like, yeah, human yeah, can yeah. respond to it, but human responses is not real time fundamentally. Yeah, to so, me, yeah, yeah. To me, real time is robot, Ro machine to machine, right? Oh, I think you, you were the one who sent me the article about this, I think, if I remember correctly. It was an interesting article about... Yeah, uh, <laughs> yeah I mean, I think I think that... Uh, um, I mean, I think there's still people who will look at the dashboards that get updated in real time. Yep. More of, most of the interesting applications will be these intelligent machine-to-machine -machine, uh, applications. Where, yeah. Uh, there's, there's alerts to humans if there's exceptions, but most of the time it's just uh, machine learning in real time. Yeah. You know, having said that, um, I have some of those human real-time use cases and it. some of the stories are just awesome. There's folks who are doing things in hospitals where... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's just like really cool stuff going on there, but it's just like you, uh, the impacts are pretty dramatic. Um, yeah. So, so, yeah, in stream processing, I mean, there's lots of people with uh, their own frameworks, but I would say right now, if I were to objectively say, and uh, I'm saying this as an advisor to Databricks, Mm -hmm. uh, I think Spark streaming is kind of a, uh, as far as a mind share. Oh, certainly. I think, um, uh, I mean, obviously Storm was popular for a while, but it seems to have declined in popularity quite dramatically in the last uh, 18 months or so. Uh, again, uh, I probably am also biased because we invest quite heavily in Spark streaming, but Spark streaming has been very successful. Having said that, I will say that um, there are a class of use cases Spark streaming is a really good fit for. I don't think it's the universal answer right, um, right, right, you know right. so um, again because of the latency requirements for specific applications and so on i think uh, the, it turns out that there's a wide swath of use cases park streaming is perfectly good for and it actually is really easy to use which you cannot underappreciate um and this is the whole actually in a distributed uh, computing environment the whole convenience thing yep. right so so sometimes it uh you, sometimes you have very uh, specialized needs and you're willing to run multiple frameworks. Yep. But some uh, most of the time, maybe you can get by with one frame. That's the advantage of things like Spark, where if you're looking for something that's easy to get going with and you know it's it's going to work reasonably well, that just works perfectly. And so it's been very effective for, uh, in our customer base as well. And actually, uh, the new system you guys uh, announced at Strata Plus Hadoop World New York, Kudu, fits into this story as well. Yeah, I, I hope so. <laughs> yeah, yeah, where uh, sometimes it makes sense to run HBase. Yep. And uh, something else, right? And, uh, yep. and uh, Hadoop, right? But yep. some sometimes 
uh, maybe you can get by with one thing. There's a, there's this general uh, trend where the pendulum swings between specialized systems and general purpose systems one way or the other. And I feel like, you know, as I said, I've been only in the data space for a relatively uh, short period of time. But every time I read the literature, it looks like this pendulum has swung back and forth over the last four decades. Um, to, and I don't think there's like this one answer, which is like, I I really do not believe there's going to be this one solution which gives you uh, the best performance for any use case and solves all use cases. Having said that, you typically want to have these choices where for this class of problems, I would rather have a general purpose system that is good enough for multiple use cases. For this class of problems, I do need special purpose systems where I cannot afford to have the costs associated with the general purpose system. So that's a constant pendulum swing. Uh, we've made bets with Kudu uh, in this space saying, hey, the HBase plus HDFS use case is a common one. Again, this was driven just like our search piece by the fact that we just saw so many clusters where people were, I'm trying to land a high throughput stream of data into an HBase system because that's the only system which can handle updates. And I have to do analytics on this data. I'm going to copy it onto HDFS. This just seemed fundamentally wrong, which is really the design point for Kudu, which is you can actually combine these two modalities into one system. It is not you know, an alternative to either of these systems, but right. for one class of use cases, it works really well. By the way, uh, at least uh, I have one data point, which is, uh, I guess I have two data points. Uh, I mean, the Todd Lipkin's talk in uh, at Strata plus Hadoop World was jam-packed. Uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the podcast I did with him was very popular. So I'm assuming then uh, uh, people have responded to Kudu. Oh, absolutely. We're getting quite a bit of excitement. And every time I, we talk to a customer, they're like, well, I have 15 use cases where I could use this technology. So we're definitely seeing a lot of interest. Uh, and plus, Todd is just such a good looking guy. Who wouldn't want to work with him? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, it has been, uh, the, it's been very gratifying to hear the level of interest. Uh, we are being fairly cautious here because it is a core storage system. So having it reach a certain level of maturity before we start having people do production work on it is important to us. Yeah, yeah. So that, that is quite clear in saying this is a, this is beta. <laughs> yep, yep. Uh, having said that, I think it's been like even the numbers we're getting internally have been uh, very, very pleasing. We're, we're feeling very good about uh, that project in general. It's I think it's going to be useful for a lot of people in a lot of different contexts. So the other talk that uh, you've been giving at Strata, so by the way, also, you used to give this talk, which is basically uh, the Hadoop platform, the state of the Hadoop platform, basically. Yep, yep. Uh, and then I noticed, because I pay attention to these things, that there was a phase shift. Whoa, <laughs> he's now talking about the cloud. <laughs> so what's going on? So uh, anyway, so uh, you, you, your talk on the cloud, actually, I, I've seen it. So it's, it's quite good. So tell me why you switched your strata talk from just the state of Hadoop to the cloud? Well, um, this is of great personal interest to me right now, uh, mainly because we are seeing much more traction for customers running in the cloud. And um, So when you say cloud here, you mean uh, public cloud? Specifically public clouds, but we also look at private clouds as important and interesting to us. Um, Private clouds have their own unique challenges. So it's not the exact same problem space. But having said that, a lot of the principles still apply and a lot of folks are looking at how to make their uh, infrastructure more elastic, um, whether that's public or private. So, uh, And a lot of the, what my talk covers is base principles in these kinds of environments, which can be, uh, you know, can be relevant in either context, public or private clouds. But uh, basically, I mean, I think as you point out, uh, a lot of things are different once you go into the cloud, right? Yep, so certainly. The notion I'm... of a cluster uh, being transient for one. Absolutely. Um, and uh, beyond that, there are some fundamental design 
principles behind the original HDFS implementation, uh, which don't actually work in the cloud. Uh, for example, this notion that data locality is fundamental to this system design, that actually starts changing in the cloud when you're looking at these large cloud providers, they're doing all these software-defined networking tricks, and they can do bisectional bandwidth at like 40 gigs per second across their data center without any oversubscription. Suddenly, you're talking about moving hundreds of terabytes of data back and forth from a storage layer to a compute layer without any huge performance penalties. Certainly, there are performance disadvantages to this, but it's not as bad as you think. Uh, so some of the core design principles in Hadoop have to change when you think about this kind of new data center design. That's really what this boils down to is not. The cloud part is interesting, but really what to me is interesting is there's a fundamental shift in the way data centers are being designed, which we have to... Uh, make sure that Hadoop uh, stays uh, well designed uh, designed to capitalize on. By the way, so when you talk about cloud, so, as a, so I can say naively, mm -hmm. you know, when you talk about a cloud, so why do I need HDFS? I'll just use S3 or whatever storage, oh. whatever object store the yep. cloud providers use. I actually think you should. Um, in fact, uh, a lot of the work that we do on the cloud is to optimize working with these object stores effectively. Um, obviously, you still need some local storage for things like spill, but that's not really the same as a distributed file system. Uh, and then it's really a question of getting all the frameworks to run really effectively and performantly against an object store. Uh, that is really uh, what I strongly believe, at least. So um, one of the most popular talks at, at Strata plus Hadoop World uh, consistently is Netflix talking about their platform. Mm -hmm. And they're completely in the cloud. And I'm assuming yep. uh, they use S3. Yep. Um, so does, does your whole mindset in terms of architecting applications, uh, the DevOps skills of your engineers, a lot of those have to change, right? Absolutely. Um, so the interesting thing, and I'll actually talk about how even though you think things are going to change dramatically, they don't change as much as you'd expect. Um, most people who start on the cloud, they're like, oh, you know what? The way I do resource management can change in a pretty fundamental way in the cloud because I can spin up a cluster when I need an application and I can shut it down once I'm done. And so they'll do things like, hey, this is a perfect example of a DevOps story where your application actually embeds in it what it means to run uh, in a particular location. So it doesn't have a hard-coded location to a particular cluster. It defines the cluster in the application itself and creates the cluster as part of the application flow. So suddenly the cluster creation management operations are embedded inside the application as opposed to being done by a separate organization or a separate team. Uh, that's a pretty fundamental shift and it's a very DevOps-oriented model of thinking. And but this but is how, your your yeah. typical engineer will need to acquire some skills around. Absolutely, right. it's it's not a freebie at all, right? So you have to actually understand how to effectively stand up a cluster. And what we see as customers gain maturity, and actually, if you see some of the Netflix talks, you see that they've ended up doing similar things here as well. Is that they start actually going back to the more central IT fashion of thinking, where um, they actually start saying, "Hey, it doesn't make it's not necessarily as cost effective to um, just spin up and spin down clusters on a per." basis, long-growing clusters still do make sense. They may be more elastic in nature. They may change in size. There may be a dispatching layer which will identify the best cluster to run on. But that's still managed by a separate group. And the application now says, 
I need a cluster with these attributes and somebody else services services the request. So there's this uh, traditional IT world, which is like IT group manages a particular cluster. There's the extremely DevOps world where the developer has to know everything about the cluster. And then there's this new, I guess what I'd call it is like a microservices world where the cluster is provided as a service to you. So you just have to ask in uh, high level requirements. And another piece of software is actually responsible for creating the cluster and giving you appropriate uh, cluster access rather than having to actually manage that process yourself. So it is still a very software oriented way of th doing things. Uh, it's still not as traditional IT, but it's, I guess the best way to think about it is microservices model. So uh, speaking of the cloud, so we, you know, we've talked about Amazon a few times, but I have to say, actually, uh, Azure and uh, Google are mm -hmm. also coming out with really great stuff. Oh, my God. It's so exciting. And, uh, and you know, you, if you look at it, so, I mean, so I'm, let's say I want to do a real-time application like I, on IoT, right? So mm -hmm. can't I just do it by piecing together uh, the components they have? So, for example, on Google, I feed data through PubSub instead yep. of Kafka. And yep. then I'd use Dataflow to do my batch and stream processing. And then yep. maybe spill, uh, do, do some reporting on BigQuery. In other yep. words... I don't need the components that we've come to love on the outside. I just use whatever they have. Yeah, and in fact, many, I think, uh, younger companies which are really focused on time to market often take the strategy you're discussing. Uh, having said that, uh, very few of our larger customers are interested in that model, largely because... Um, They've done this before with Oracle or whoever. Vendor exactly, and like they really do, uh, they really do care about this. They do care that like I'm working on open source software which I can walk away from because this is way more um, entrenched. When your application is completely built on these services, it just gets really hard to pull out. So they get, tend to be much more cautious about building really deep dependencies like this. Um, I think uh, Google is a good example of where. I think for the best reasons, Google actually did uh, uh, the Google application engine, which asked you to basically think about an application in a new way. And I think they had really good ideas here. But vendors, were, people who were building applications were really scared about having to do this complete change in the way they designed their application to work in the Google way, uh, no matter how good it was, because they're like, hey, I'm stuck if I go down this path. So that then generally is a concern for folks. They do prefer the open source components, which they know will allow them to move between these clouds or even move off a cloud if they believe it's not the right answer for them long term. And which actually the cloud uh, providers have also recognized because they all provide all yep. these things, right? So you can run exactly. Spark on on all of these uh, exactly. places. You can run uh, some uh, some form of Kafka. Maybe they have their own for that piece. But you know what I mean? Absolutely. They're doing Spark. They're doing MapReduce. They're doing Hive. All of these pieces, like many of them are running Impala. Uh, all of these pieces are actually becoming common in these uh, 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 environments for exactly this reason. Google even it has uh, Bigtable, which is HBase compatible. Exactly. And it's interesting because uh, it's Google. They created MapReduce up front and they're actually using the open source version. It's kind of crazy to think about it if you uh, look at it historically, but they're doing it because they know it's not just about the fact that they probably have a really good implementation. It's about the fact that there's a standard and you want to match that standard. So I think uh, that gives you a sense of how important this um, standard creation uh, function that open source does, uh, creates uh, is important. So it seems like uh, one strategy that the cloud providers can do is to make their components somewhat API compatible with the things outside to kind of lessen the fear factor that you've described. Certainly. And um, we do see that more and more. Uh, having said that, uh, it's very hard to be 
perfectly API compatible, which is why many of them will actually just uh, use the ac actual application instead of just building a different implementation. Yeah, because the uh, surface area, for example, of Spark is quite big. It's now. enormous. It's yeah. not trivial to uh, duplicate that uh, in a different system. Um, so in terms of um, the cloud, and you look at the earnings statements of, of uh, these companies and the, you know, these cloud services are, are growing like gangbusters, right? Oh, oh my God, Amazon's publishing its numbers and you're just like, wow, good job, guys. So it, it, <laughs> it seems like that uh, my my reading of that is that uh, enterprise mm -hmm. are, is also open to uh, to doing a lot more things on the cloud. Maybe not everything, but certainly analytics is part of the mix. Uh, absolutely. And I think it's, uh, I actually was talking to the CIO of a pretty large company and uh, he was actually saying that uh, he will know the cloud is for real when um, he can move his large data applications on there because those things tend to be the hardest things to move. And we are seeing that happen now. We're seeing some serious uh, migrations to the public cloud from large companies. Um, to be honest, we've also seen uh, a different direction. We've seen some folks move off of public clouds onto on-prem because it turns out that um, you can spend money like a drunk sailor on the public cloud if you don't have really good controls um, on how... Oh, yeah. Yeah, you yeah, know. yeah, yeah. I mean, I think, I think you basically... <laughs> You can uh, go to lunch and come back with a big bill. Oh my God, it's kind of shocking. I see these randomly, uh, these companies which are really small and uh, you know should be very careful of their financial man management and uh, they just like, it's just unbelievable how much money they can spend on the cloud uh, hardware. Um, it's yeah, hard to tell. The, the other crazy thing about the cloud is this: uh, there's this uh, back and forth on security, right? So one, yep. uh, so, so you'll hear something like, uh, oh, uh, uh, "Companies are afraid to go to the cloud because of their data and security," and then and then you'll hear you'll hear on the other hand you'll say you'll hear something like, uh, "Well, Google, Amazon, and Microsoft they have better security engineers than you guys." <laughs> yep. You know, yep. so I mean, so there's this pendulum back and forth in the <laughs> argument on security in the cloud. Personally, I do think that uh, the latter argument is more likely to be reflective of the truth. Long term, I do think like the public cloud providers are going to do a very good job on the security side, and it's uh, going to be easier to trust them. Uh, having said that, a large part of the complexity in security is not just about um, whether or not the public clouds have those capabilities. It's about uh, the level of trust you have in that organization, as well as changing the systems and processes these organizations already have in place to a new world, which is a new different security model. That's a non-trivial exercise for large companies um, because they've already established a ton of process and management uh, ideas to make sure that their data is secure. And having to switch those out to a completely new system is non-trivial. So it's often more a process problem than just a whether or not they can do it. By the way, so how should people think about uh, HDFS versus S3 in this object store? So certainly S S3 is more scalable. Yeah. Um, price, I guess, debatable. Performance, definitely HDFS is better, right? Lower latency. Yep. Yep. Input is better. Uh, for performance, so this is the thing here. You know, comparing... If you compare on the public cloud, the way the pricing structure is set up, I think S3 tends to be cheaper. Uh, it's not necessarily a huge uh, difference in price, but it is cheaper. Uh, and it has some really nice advantages around being able to push a button and replicate your data to a separate data center and things of that nature. So I do think S3 has like some really strong advantages. Uh, and not just S3, but any of the object stores and any of the public clouds, they do have some strong advantages over HDFS uh, for your general purpose data, which is not performance critical. Uh, for performance criticality, you do end up having to deal with like something like HDFS because as you said, uh, you get much better throughput, much more consistent throughput, and you get better lower latencies as well. So 
we see a mix of both depending on the application workload that you care about. Now, if you compare that to on-prem world, uh, it gets very different and it's got hard, harder to value these things. But there, HDFS starts becoming comparable again. It might be even cheaper than uh, some of these object stores if you can run an efficient IT infrastructure. Oh, but yeah, it's, yeah, yeah. yeah, you know, so, but then it's like, it's not apples to apples anymore. It's apples to oranges. So it's a little harder to do that yeah, comparison. No, your S3 bill can be enormous if you yeah. have a lot of data. Exactly, exactly. But uh, I think on the public cloud, if, uh, if possible, you should use something like S3. It's just very cost effective. So let's talk a little bit about some trends. So one of the things that I, uh, I'm torn about how much time and uh, cycles to, to spend on is hardware. Uh, it seems like there's so much great stuff happening in the hardware world. But uh, So how much should we be paying attention to hardware? Um, so uh, there are some fairly major changes happening in the hardware world that I do think really matter a lot. Um, specifically, uh, you know, when I joined Cloudera, um, like a customer who was going crazy and buying the most expensive hardware was buying 64 gigabytes of RAM. On that 64 gigabytes of RAM, uh, they also had uh, 12 disk spindles with two terabytes each and 24 terabytes of disk. Uh, at this point, um, today, many of my customers buy 256 gigabytes of RAM or even potentially uh, 384 gigabytes to 512 gigabytes of RAM, the amount of disk is still exactly the same because disks don't spin faster. You still want a certain level of throughput. You're still looking at 24 terabytes of uh, disk in the, your machine. So already in just two years, we've seen that go from 64 to 512 potentially. I don't think this trend is going to stop. And we are suddenly going to be looking at within three years, one terabyte RAM machines. So you're suddenly changed the so, ratio. So you're, of, you're talking RAM and not the non-volatile RAM. I mean, the next, get, next, I want to get there too. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. another interesting thing. So even just on pure RAM, we're looking at a ratio changing like 20x uh, in the next three, in the next two years from where we started two years ago. Actually, let, let's take a step uh, back even further. Because uh, if you look at the kind of this, this tier, you have the CPU cache. You got RAM and then you got uh, you got storage, right? So then yep. uh, uh, more and more people in our world are starting to use kind of the uh, L, L2, L3 cache. Right? That is true. Uh, in fact, uh, this will tie to another thing that I want to talk about is the RAM stuff. Uh, what happens when you get larger RAM is surprising. You're like, oh, if you get larger RAM, you know, things go faster. It's all well and good. Uh, what we're actually seeing is that uh, the bottleneck shifts rapidly from I.O., to CPU efficiency and everything you can do to squeeze more from the CPU becomes really important. Um, so what we're finding is that you know a lot of the things we do at Cloudera, like Kudu or like Impala, uh, fundamentally we really care about bringing uh, performance out of the CPU. And a lot of this will be like, can I do vectorized operations? Can I make sure to take advantage of my L2 cache more effectively because that allows my CPU to spin more efficiently. So it really changes the bottleneck from the I/O subsystem to the CPU subsystem, and everything you can do to equal performance there really matters. So the Which, uh... Uh, are you paying attention to this project tungsten? Yeah, absolutely. We are very so much. They're, so they're uh, doing some stuff like that too, right? Yeah, absolutely, and this is a trend that you're going to see across any system that works in the big data world. Traditional big data systems were like, yeah, I can write like my Java code and it'll be fine because you know what? I'm stuck reading this data from disk anyway. Now everybody's like, oh no, that doesn't work anymore. You have to do as much uh, native code as possible to get the most performance po uh, when your large memory systems are in place. So Tungsten is basically the effort in the Spark community to 
do more CPU efficient things, um, whether that's vectorizing stuff, whether that's actually using, um, they're effectively moving away from managed memory to uh, managing byte buffers. Uh, so you can actually have much more efficient handling of memory. So you can actually get better, better CPU efficiency again as well. So all of this stuff, I think that's literally the bet we made with systems like Impala three years ago. And we're seeing that come to coming to fruition now. And I think that's just going to be an inexorable trend where all new data systems will fundamentally worry a lot more about CPU efficiency than I.O. So they'll be doing things like this where they're much more careful about their memory management. They're much more careful about how they spend CPUs. So be uh, before I distract you, mm -hmm. you, you mentioned one terabyte RAM. Yep. Um, you know, today you can go to hp.com and buy a system that has 12 terabytes of RAM. No, no, but you, you're, you're like, you have to be a nerd to do that. But you're, you're, say, you're, saying, uh, you're saying it's going to be widespread. Absolutely. That's the funny thing. It's like if, uh, with, we have a partnership with Intel. And the good thing about working with Intel is that they tend to give you a heads up on like their roadmaps. And I'm not going to talk too much about their future roadmaps. But um, uh, the, the good thing about the... Hardware world, in software, it's hard to see what's going to happen 18 months down the road because things change so fast. In hardware, they have to know right now what they're going to ship in three years because they have to actually equip a fab and like do things which involve physical right. construction. So it, you tend to be able to see pretty far into the future with uh, the hardware world. So it's very uh, obvious to us that this trend of memory density is increasing is just starting. And so one terabyte RAM being commonplace... I'm, I don't have any doubts it's going to happen soon. So, um, so what about the next-gen SSDs, this non-volatile RAM? Non-volatile RAM is, again, going to be super exciting. And Intel has actually talked about some of this stuff publicly in the context of 3D XPoint uh, technology. And the 3D XPoint stuff that they're releasing right now is a pale shadow of what's coming in the future. I think they're doing some really cool things in this space and multiple vendors looking at it, but I'm particularly excited about what Intel has been doing here. Um, you're suddenly looking at systems that have the characteristic of it's a price point that's similar to Flash, but performance, which is more akin to RAM, is non-volatile. This is going to be a pretty big game changer. I, I really oh, do yeah. I mean, so you, you just stick all your data there. Exactly. It's like unbelievable. So now you're suddenly like, oh my God, I can stick multiple terabytes of this stuff on um, my computer. And that's like actually big data. That's not small data anymore. So uh, the amount of data you can actually process is going to go up dramatically with these hardware innovations. So it's like the biggest thing that's happening in this space is really how m memory is changing. Um, and it's both physical memory getting denser and these new memory technologies like 3D XPoint, which are going to just uh, fundamentally change the way you work with... Um, so what's the, what's the time frame before we start seeing this common, yeah, so commonly? Commonly, uh, commonly used, I would say probably two to three years um, is where we'll start seeing it. The first versions of it are coming out this year. Uh, it'll take about 18 months more for the next-gen stuff, which will be much more uh, competitively priced and have interesting characteristics, and it'll be beyond that that you'll see widespread. So, so this kind of will happen somewhat in parallel. You'll have a terabyte of RAM, and then you've got this next-generation non-volatile... RAM. Yep, exactly. Uh, exactly. And uh, in fact, I don't think you will see one or the other. You'll actually see both of them being used in conjunction with each other as well. So where does a system like, so I guess there's another uh, company that I advise I should disclose this, mm -hmm. Tachyon Nexus. So where does a system like Tachyon uh, uh, play into a world where you've got a lot of this uh, fast storage? So I've not been following Tachyon Nexus too closely, so I won't comment on them specifically. Um, 
I do think storage systems in general have to become smarter about uh, managing these tiers of uh, storage. And we're already seeing this in HDFS itself, by the way. So HDFS has done some pretty early stuff. I don't oh, think yeah, it's yeah, like... Yeah, yeah. Pretty, so pretty, there's, there's caching, right? There's caching. There's also like a hierarchical storage management, which allows you to do things like, say, I want these files to be placed in my flash storage versus my uh, spinning disks, for example. And you can imagine this will be a natural extension where you'll go, as you get these different tiers, you'll want to be able to place them uh, in different tiers as well. Uh, but the important thing from my point of view, irrespective of which storage system you use, is having this stuff be much more automatic, automatically managed, um, being able to have heat maps, understanding how data, uh, which data is important and being able to figure out uh, where to place data. And by the way, this is not something new to this world, right? Like people have been doing this in the traditional storage world for decades now. Um, and so, what, well, how do, so what happens to uh, persistence? Uh, managing persistence is important. So write-throughs, uh, critical capability. So the good thing is with things like NVRAM, uh, which is a non-volatile memory stuff, um, they are persistent memory, so you can actually trust them uh, to be uh, final write. Uh, only RAM, pure RAM becomes uh, something that you have to worry about from the write perspective. Um, but managing persistence is uh, becoming easier with systems like NVRAM because that's actually a real write. It's not uh, something that you is ephemeral in nature. Um, so... Again, I do believe that this stuff should not be completely exposed to the end user. I think you, the more we can auto-manage this, uh, the more uh, feasible it will be to leverage these technologies. And by the way, this applies in the cloud as well. Uh, what we've actually seen as a common request uh, with uh, things like object stores is people want us to uh, intelligently cache things on local HDFS because that gives them the best of both worlds. Um, it's just a natural extension. By the way, I go back to my original question, which is uh, to what extent uh, do your customers or people that you talk to pay attention to hardware? Um, well, I or do they just uh, they just basically say you worry about that stuff? <laughs> well, you know, you don't you don't get to walk away from that, unfortunately. But having said that, I think to large extent, I'm talking a lot about future hardware trends. I do talk to customers about planning for large RAM systems, but. The fact of the matter is, there's a pretty good recommendations for what you should do today. You know, right. you want to buy large memory systems, but there is a knee in the price curve. Uh, if you need to start things right now, you have to buy that knee. Uh, so 192 to 256 gigabytes of RAM is common. 12 2 terabyte disk spindles are common. And you only have so many options. There are obviously special cases, like if you're deploying a HANA system, you may say, hey, it's worth my while to buy a larger RAM system. But in general, the patterns are pretty fixed. Um, but in terms of their long-term planning and how they budget for the future, uh, we do talk about the hardware trends. So finally, close with a topic that's somewhat uh, obscure, but I think is going to become even more important, which is metadata. Uh -huh. um, you, you've <laughs> talked about uh, that's one of the things that Hadoop does well, but I'm, I think, uh, are you familiar with what uh, Joe Hellerson is trying to do in Berkeley? Absolutely. We work closely with Joe and his team uh, at Clutterup, so we're very much familiar with them. Yeah, I think that... Uh, I think the notion of having a uh, kind of uh, vendor-neutral uh, set of, uh, I don't know, I guess Joe doesn't like to use the word standards. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't want to disclose too much about what we're doing with Joe here, but uh, I will say that... Well, I guess descri describe ge just generally the goal of... Uh... Yeah, so one of the things that's interesting in this space here is that um, we are starting to see an emergence of adding additional metadata that describes uh, what your data represents. This can be... There are many attributes, many types of pieces of information you can capture. Um, 
in terms of metadata, you can capture security policies, you can capture things like who owns the data and who uses the data. You can capture things like data profiling and data quality information. Uh, there's a lot of various, a lot of axes along which you can capture information about the data that's relevant, relevant and useful for somebody who's using this data set. What we have, what we have so far in today's ecosystem is that individual companies build specialized repositories of this information, which contain snippets, not the entirety, but their relevant pieces of information about that data is stored in that system. That doesn't really make long-term sense. You do want to have a central uh, collection of all this information that any person who wants to use data can leverage as a source of truth. And multiple systems may still generate interesting metadata, but you want that all to be stored in a way that's accessible across multiple frameworks. And that's really what Joe is pushing for. We strongly agree with his point of view, and uh, we're definitely interested in doing more there with him. So what's the, well, so this is, you know, I, I also am very excited about this, but then on the other hand, I'm so, somewhat of a realist too. So this, this is going to take a while. Um, it is, uh, certainly. Uh, I think there are things that the community can do to accelerate this for sure. I think also that um, folks like us at Cloudera and other companies uh, who have reasonably large bullhorns can accelerate this process uh, if we uh, put our minds to it. So uh, it's certainly, I mean, building community is non-trivial. Uh, you know it better than most people, Ben. Um, but I do think that there are um, enough people who are interested in this problem that we can make progress faster than you'd imagine. So as you, as you talk about this particular uh, problem, do you think that people generally get it? It's um, relatively new. Uh, I think most, of, most folks are dealing with more basic problems than this. Yeah, yeah. Uh, there, I, think, I think in terms of if you, if you want to uh, really be honest about it, maybe the sense of urgency, if, yep. you're, if you have a lot of things you're doing, maybe this is not a high priority. That is, that is the fact of life right now. Having said that, I would say that the larger companies that we work with tend to care about this problem more because they have so many data sources that they have to deal with that the problem of managing your big data becomes a big data problem in and of itself. So uh, they do care a lot about this problem. And by the way, don't you think that, uh, I mean, so we're getting ahead of ourselves here, but uh, once you have this metadata that cuts across frameworks and vendors in place, I mean, there might be interesting applications. Absolutely. Um, there are very simple ones, by the way. And you you think these are all like, do you really need this? But uh, hey, um, being able to tell what uh, data means, you usually have this data owner field as the person who like knows the most about the data. It turns out that in most organizations, the person who uses the data the most is actually the person who knows the most about the data. So there are these social engineering aspects of using this data, which actually leverages, allows you to really unlock the potential of some of these data sets if you can actually understand how it's used in your organization. Right, actually, uh, uh, Joe has this interesting uh, example too, which is basically uh, as you're working with the data, as you're uh, doing data wrangling or data preparation, that's the point in time when you actually know the data the best. That's true. You're and, forced. To... And if you don't kind of capture the decisions you're making, the little things that you, the choices that you're, you're making, uh, you lose a lot of that knowledge. He's absolutely right about that. Uh, I totally agree with him. Yeah. Well, this has been great, and we look forward to your uh, uh, talk at Strata Plus Hadoop World in Singapore. And if you are going, uh, Make sure you check Jay Raganathan's talk. Uh, he's always uh, one of the more popular speakers at Strata. 
always delivers the goods, I have to say. <laughs> Thank you I, so uh, much. I'm uh, one of those people who actually never gets to go to Talks of Strata because I'm running around, but I do watch tape afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> so I did, uh, I did really uh, learn a lot from your talk in New York, by the way, which I just watched. Thank you so much. You can find Jay on LinkedIn. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, you can subscribe through iTunes or Stitcher or TuneIn.com or SoundCloud and never miss an episode.